ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to the seventh season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution produced with our partners at WSB Radio. This season, Judgment Call. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to AJCBreakdown.com. Follow us on Twitter at AJC Courts and at ReporterJCB. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our journalists and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. Do you have any children? I have one living now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And is one of your children deceased? Yes. Very sorry for the loss of your son, and we don't have any questions for this witness, Your Honor. But the police was like, um, somebody help, somebody help me, help me, help me. I guess he was like, also like, scared. I don't know what, I went from there. I was like, why did you shoot him? You shot him. So I was, it was not my intention for to be shot. In episode 7, you heard from the three eyewitnesses who saw Chip Olson gunned down and advancing Anthony Hill. They testified they weren't scared of Hill and were surprised he was shot. But one witness, Pedro Castillo, veered sharply from the prosecution's script. In fact, he could have been testifying for the defense. Castillo said he didn't believe Anthony Hill was running toward Olson seeking help. He described his approach as if he were daring Olson to shoot. And then... It got worse for the prosecution when Pete Johnson asked a question I'm sure he'd like to have back. From what you observed, did the officer have to shoot Anthony to stop him? Yes. Why? Because he was was running towards him. That was on a Friday, so the jury had all weekend to chew on Castillo's statement. The state needed to come out swinging on Monday, and it did, as you'll see. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Episode 8 of Season 7 of Breakdown, Judgment Call. I'm Christian Boone. I cover law enforcement and public safety for the AJC. One week after the shooting, Olson sat down with two GBI agents, Clint Thomas and Jan Rolane. You heard mention of this interview in the prosecution's opening statement that Olson never referred to Anthony Hill by his name, but he did take note of his bulging quadriceps. The prosecution played the 47-minute interview to the jury. One thing that's striking is that the agents give him little to no pushback. And if you remember from the immunity hearing, 
Olsen tends not to speak like a normal person. He relies on law enforcement lingo and often sounds like an instructional video on how to be a bureaucrat. Here he is in the GBI interview. What caught my attention when I told him it was new of his, of his behaviors and what I observed when I saw him do crafts in the middle part of the roadway was he was probably under the influence of drug or drugs, uh, possibly uh, a dissociative anesthetic. Um, again, because the feed that this individual would feel no pain, aspartame and OC spray would in all likelihood, if I had encountered, would be ineffective, and also ground fighting would be severely hampered by a subject under such, such drugs. Olson was anticipating a fight, and he's giving his rationale for why he immediately opted for lethal force. He had to have been following news coverage of the incident. He even volunteers this. I guess there was some speculation. Individuals asking, well, why didn't he taste me? Based on my training, situation, what I observed in this individual, that was not a viable option. I remember thinking, when he started spreading to me, I was getting out of the car, thinking, this guy's big. This guy looks like, his muscular looks like a football player, kind of built. Um, and I noticed that when he was running, I saw the muscles pumping in his quadriceps in front of his legs, and if they were visible. A big, muscular football player? In what league is that? Hill was 5'9 and weighed 165, four inches shorter and at least 40 pounds lighter than Olsen. Remember how the eyewitnesses testified Anthony Hill started off running but slowed down when he neared Olsen? Well, listen to how Olsen describes it. When he had turned the corner, he sprang his feet, he immediately began sprinting. Run straight up like this. Okay. I mean, like a sprint. Under questioning, Olson mentioned that he was wearing what cops call a blue line morning badge. Five days earlier, a local police detective had been killed, ambushed, shot in the back of the head. Was the detective's death on Olson's mind when he arrived at the Heights of Chambly apartment complex? We'll never know because GBI agents never asked the question. I was surprised the defense didn't focus on it either. After all, this is about Olson's state of mind. If a fellow cop had been killed just a few days earlier, wouldn't all cops be on high alert, including Olson? But it could also mean he was trigger-happy or driven by emotion. It could have played either way. The GBI agents never asked Olson whether he was in fear for his life. And they also left out the most obvious question. What made this unarmed, unclothed young man such a dire threat? Here's how the interview ended. I, I appreciate your uh, I appreciate the work. The tone speaks for itself polite, even deferential. At trial, the state needs to show that Olson acted unreasonably. And to do that, the state needs to explain what a reasonable response would have been. Enter Sergeant J.K. Walker. He wasn't only the state's use of force expert, he actually trained Olson at the DeKalb Police Academy. And he administered the oath of office when Olson graduated, the same oath that Olson is now charged with violating. And so it sounds like you, you know uh, the defendant in this case. Yes. And when did you first meet him? Uh, it would, would have been the first day of the recruit, recruit training process. Um, I was the lead instructor for his, his class. Remember, Olson is charged with two counts of violating his oath of office. So, Sergeant Walker's testimony is critical for the prosecution. Pete Johnson has Walker explain DeKalb County's use of force policy. 
The value of human life is immeasurable. One of the department's core value statement is the preservation of life. Officers must exhaust every means available of non-lethal force prior to utilizing deadly force. Walker describes what police call a use of force continuum. He talks about voice commands, then soft hands, like redirecting or pushing someone aside, then hard hands or using your fist. Uh, lastly would be uh, your service weapon um, at the, in the use of force continuum, which is considered deadly force. And so uh, the weapon is the last on that continuum. And what it essentially means is that in any given moment, you can either escalate or de-escalate based upon the situation that you're, that you're dealing with. And, and again, this is gonna be predicated upon the subject. Is the subject obey, applying, um, obeying commands? What is the subject doing at that time? So what Walker is basically saying is that Olson had a number of options when he encountered Hill on March 9, 2015. Most of them wouldn't have been lethal. And maybe here's a good time to address a question we get asked a lot. Why didn't Olson fire a warning shot or try to disable Hill by aiming for his legs? Turns out both are explicitly banned under DeKalb's use of force policy. Uh, Sergeant Walker, there's discussion about um, shoot to stop. Can you just explain to the jury um, what that is? So anytime that an officer, uh, he or she discharges their weapon, they're going to shoot uh, center mass and they're going to shoot to stop that threat. And so same thing goes for, you know, say a warning shot. Could you, could you fire one in the air and, and that would be within policy and, and the law? No, a warning shot is, is, not, is not within policy. Reason being is because as, as police officers, we are responsible for each and every round that is discharged from our, um, um, our weapon, our service weapon. Um, the weapon can, you can fire a warning shot and that can in, end up ending, um, hitting someone, an innocent bystander or something like that. During training, the recruits are sprayed in the face with OC, or pepper spray, so they learn what it's like to fight someone in that condition. They also have to fire their guns and place someone in custody while their eyes sting. They also practice with expandable metal batons and are trained not to strike a suspect's head, neck, or groin, only the arms and legs. Next up, the taser. Walker described things that can limit the taser's effectiveness. One was heavy clothing and cold weather. Not an issue in this case. Now Johnson finally gets to the moment of truth. Would any of these methods have worked for Olson when he was confronted by Hill? This was where things got really interesting. Sergeant Walker stepped down from the witness stand and at one point Pete Johnson ran toward him, an imitation of Anthony Hill on that day. Walker showed how he could have used his hands or his baton. And if I were coming at you and I'm right now at the end of the jury box um, and I have my hands back behind me and I'm coming at you at this speed, would you be able to use the aspiton? He talks about trying to redirect the person threatening the officer. If you're not able to redirect that individual, then again, like I said, you want to look at the extremities such as the arm and the legs for utilizing the strikes with the aspiton. I could, I could immediately strike here at a 45 degree angle towards your arm, or I can take a strike at your leg at a 45 degree angle. Walker made the whole thing look so easy. He moved Johnson past him like a matador. It was very effective, and I'm sure everyone in the courtroom was thinking, why in the world did Olson feel he needed to pull his gun? It necessary that you needed to use some type of force against me to get me to comply for whatever reason. And I was completely nude. Would there be anything stopping you from using a taser on me? No. 
Johnson then had Walker talk about the decision by a cop to pull his gun. If you pull out a firearm, let's say you were attempting to make a show of control um, by using the firearm um, for that manner, would you consider that an intermediate level or is the pulling of a firearm always you know, considered deadly force whether you fired or not? No, that's, that's on a deadly force level. The firearm is considered to be on the deadly force level. Would you train someone that they should pull out their gun just to scare somebody and not use it? No. In the previous episode, we described how the state had stumbled out of the starting blocks. But this testimony was devastating to Olson. It showed that he had better options than his gun that day. When Johnson sat back down after that direct examination, a conviction seemed far more likely. Defense attorney Don Samuel did his best with what he had to work with, and he scored some points. He got Walker to agree that fists can be deadly weapons, and to acknowledge that police officers are sometimes killed with their own weapons when assailants wrestle them away. Samuel gets Walker to look at George's self-defense law, and he won this admission, a key to the defense case. So if someone is threatening physical force or violence against any person, deadly force is permitted, correct? Yes. You don't disagree with that? No. When Samuel finished, Pete Johnson was back up on his feet again. He asked Walker whether all fears are reasonable, like, say, a fear of clowns. Can I shoot a clown on the street when I see him? No. Why not? I'm afraid of him. I have a reasonable fear of clowns. Saw it when I was way too young. And I don't like clowns. So when I see one on the street, I'm going to shoot him. Pennywise goes down. I can do that, right? No. Why not? It's not, it's not a reasonable fear. Naked, unarmed man, running at me. I can just shoot that person just like that, right? No. Why not? Because that person at that time is not present, presenting a deadly um, force threat at that time. In fact, I think you testified earlier with Mr. Samuel that could be, well, first of all, would you agree it could be no threat at all? Correct. And then let's just, for the sake of a hypothetical, say that the person was going to come up and they were going to slap you in the face. You can shoot them then, right? Incorrect. Why not? That is not um, a forcible felony. It was a good day for Johnson. Walker was far and away the best witness for the state so far. Earlier, the state had called Araceli Vega to the stand. She's a 49-year-old woman who lived with her three children in an apartment that overlooked the scene. On the day of the shooting, she'd just returned home from the grocery store and was standing in front of her refrigerator when something caught her attention. Vega doesn't speak English, so here she is through an interpreter. I heard shouts and shots. Vega says she heard two or three shots. There was one right after the other. Pass, pass, pass. Like, pass, 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 like that. She hurried over to her third floor porch and looked down. She saw Olson lowering his pistol and Hill, his hands up, falling forward to the ground. She also saw Olson turn Hill over and try to administer aid. She then grabbed her cell phone and began taking video from her bird's eye view. When Johnson plays the cell phone video to the jury, you see the scene unfold. You can hear people shouting, a dog barking, then sirens approaching. As she watches, Vega is overcome with emotion and breaks down on the witness stand. 
Most importantly, the video shows Officer Lynn Anderson arriving at the scene. Olson can be seen walking up to Anderson. He raises his hands above his head in a threatening manner, his fingers clenched in a fist. In his GBI interview, which you just heard part of earlier in this episode, Olson said this. No one can but ask me what happened. Here's Olson's testimony during his immunity hearing. That's when he said he couldn't even remember Anderson being at the scene. You recall uh, Officer Anderson coming out? No, sir. You remember speaking with him? No, sir. Well, Anderson remembers. Here's his testimony from the trial. I made contact with Robert Olson, asked him what happened. <clears throat> and he told me that um, as he was exiting out the vehicle, Anthony Hill came running toward him, and he started pounding on him. Anderson testified he was unsatisfied with that response and explains why. I was waiting to hear that there was, Anthony Hill has some type of weapon in his hand, whether it's a stick, something, knife, something, because it had to be justified why you shot somebody. And I didn't see any type of object around his body. Anderson watches Vegas cell phone footage on the screen. That's when I'm having a conversation, asking him what happened. And that's when he told me when he exited out the vehicle, um, Anthony Hill ran toward him, started pounding on him. And the demonstration is showing him raising his arms. Can you describe the defendant's demeanor? Uh, he had like a, like a look, you know, he had the look that it was like somebody did something really wrong, like a, excuse my language, but it's like the old look. Uh, that was the, like the look he had. There's a good reason the prosecution made Anderson its final witness. Why would he make this up? Cops who testify against other cops don't typically win any popularity contests. And the video backs him up. The cross-examination was Amanda Clark Palmer's assignment. She tries to poke holes in Anderson's testimony to little effect. Is it possible you misheard what Robert Olson said? I did not mishear Is anything. it possible? Is it possible? No, ma'am. Okay. Is it possible that by the time you went and wrote your report, you misremembered what he said? What's, what do you get trying to get at? Can you explain to me on that? On the, with the, Is it possible you made a mistake when you wrote up your report when you said that Olson said Hill pounded on him? Is that a possibility? That's no possibility. Okay. Those tricky questions, is that right there? But that was not a mistake from what he told me when he said that he came when he exited out the vehicle and he ran toward him and pounded him, that's not a possibility, that's not a mistake. Okay. What he told me. Okay. Because I knew how serious this case was gonna be. As Anderson leads the stand, Johnson looks up to the judge. Your Honor, with that, the state rests. This is Breakdown. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. After four days and 15 witnesses, the prosecution had made its case, and Judge Deer Jackson sent the jurors home for the night. So we all wondered, would Olson testify in his own defense? And did the defense have any tricks up its sleeve? The next morning, we learned the answers to both of those questions. We are ready to proceed. 
the state branch yesterday the defense can obviously just ready to proceed your honor we are thank you um, on behalf of robert chip olson the defense press so that answered our questions i can't say i'm surprised that olson didn't testify given his performance at the immunity hearing and we found out why as the trial neared, the defense team asked lawyer Lawrence Zimmerman to conduct a mock cross-examination of Olson. If you remember, Zimmerman represented Justin Ross Harris's ex-wife, Leanna Taylor, in season two, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder. It turns out that Zimmerman learned what we already knew, that Olson on the witness stand can be stiff and stoic. And he speaks like a cop, not like a regular person. First of all, Zimmerman said, Olson didn't have much experience testifying. And secondly, you can't testify like a police officer when you're charged with a crime because you need to be humble, you need to show some emotion, and you need to get the jury to, to like you and care about you. And listening to that immunity hearing, that was never going to happen if he couldn't change who he was. So when I cross-examined him in the mock cross-examination, I did find him to be a little bit more emotional. In fact, he did cry um, at one point. So he was very, um, you know, very just sad. Olson's extensive training record was also a problem for him. Zimmerman focused on a five-day course Olson attended on mental health training. I said, so look at all these days. Half the days are dedicated to de-escalation in, men in mental health crisis. What's this that you did was de-escalating? That's what I was focusing on is just your training tells you to do all these things and by, you know, the situation happens and all your training goes out the window and you're now you're out of a car with a gunpoint and someone coming at you. And why shoot him? At the end of the day, Zimmerman said, it seemed to be a good idea to keep Olson off the stand, particularly when lead prosecutor Pete Johnson was loaded for bear if he testified. The defense really had no reason to put Chip up other than just because maybe the jury wanted to hear from him. That's not a good enough reason. Jurors returned to the courtroom that Thursday for closing arguments. The attorneys did not disappoint. Lead prosecutor Pete Johnson led off for the state. Throughout the trial, he was an imposing presence. He seemed to relish a fight. He often argues motions and even questions some witnesses with a good deal of snark. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. He uses it with good effect. And you'll hear quite a bit of that snarkiness when he makes his case. Johnson starts out by reminding jurors that people at the apartment complex were worried about Anthony Hill, concerned about his well-being. And so when you're concerned about someone's well-being, who is one of the people that you turn to for help? The police. The police are there to serve and protect. When Olson got the call from the 911 dispatcher, he knew he was dealing with someone who was demented or mentally ill, Johnson said. And what is the first thing that Officer Olson does? He pulls out his gun. Pulls out his gun. Deadly force. An unarmed, nude man, running, jogging, not sprinting, as he said, towards him. His answer to how am I going to deal with this situation was deadly force, right from the rip, right off the bat. Anthony wasn't just in front of the car. He didn't drop out of the sky out of nowhere. He came across the parking lot at him. 
Johnson notes that the GBI agent who interviewed Olson a week after the shooting said Olson was concerned about a confrontation. When you're concerned about a confrontation, the answer is to shoot someone dead? Is that the society that we live in? That the gun is the answer? When you have all those other options on your belt? Is life that of little value? It's not. It's not. And you can say it's not. Johnson summarizes the counts Olson faces and the law governing their deliberations. As for the most serious charges, the two murder charges, it boils down to whether Olson was in reasonable fear of imminent harm or death. Can police officers just shoot people with impunity? With no checks and balances? Is that the world we live in? We do not live in that kind of police state where people can just shoot people and we just check it off, it's good to go. Maybe there was a time that it was like that. Not here, not today. Johnson then gets to the charge that Olson lied to Officer Lynn Anderson. You know when you lie, right? Come on. Well, maybe he was mistaken. Maybe, maybe, maybe you misheard him. Maybe the wind was blowing and it, you couldn't really hear what he said. Or maybe he just lied. You know, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's usually a duck. Maybe he just lied. Now, why he lied at that moment, to cover it up. Johnson then goes into full snark mode. An unarmed nude man. 5'7", 165, coming at a fully packed with a tool, of tool belt of weapons. 6'2", 205 pounds. Really? He was worried about death or great bodily injury? Was some amount of force to be used in this case okay? Probably. Right? I think everyone can reasonably agree that when Anthony Hill ran at him, he didn't have to stand there. But it's what level of force is necessary and what's reasonable. Specifically, what did Sergeant Walker tell you? Well, the, since he was unarmed, could have pulled out his ass baton, redirected him, and then acted as appropriate. How hard would that have really been? I mean, isn't that something that 6'2", 205, you could do? What was that just, ah, no, guy's naked. I don't wanna touch him. I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. I'm just, I'm, I'm just gonna pull my gun out and if he doesn't stop, I'm gonna shoot him. Because isn't that what happened? Is that okay? If police are on the street and someone starts running at them and they all stop and you don't stop, you, you can just shoot him? This is not self-defense. It's excessive force, ladies and gentlemen. Annoyed and panic doesn't equal reasonable fear. Johnson reminds the jury that no evidence was presented during trial that showed Olson was in fear. Remember what we promised at the outset of a trial, Johnson said? And the evidence is 
just what the state told you in the opening. That Anthony Hill, unclothed, unarmed, and then that defendant's actions were unnecessary and unreasonable. Well, that's not exactly what the state told jurors in its opening statement. Remember what Buffy Thomas said? Unclothed, unarmed, and unable to harm. That final description vanished, and we'd say for good reason. Amanda Clark Palmer handled the closing argument for the defense. She may lack the star power of her more famous co-counsel, but Don Samuel has placed considerable trust in her. So it wasn't a surprise to see her give the closing argument. Clark Palmer knows her way around such high-profile cases. She was part of the legal team that represented rapper T.I. when he faced federal firearms charges. She began with some light stagecraft, walking behind Olson, placing her hands on her client's sunken shoulders. She looks to the jury and says, Robert Chip Olson was a good cop. He was a good cop who had to make a tough decision. In those few seconds he had, when a suspicious person who was possibly demented, possibly high on PCP, who was ignoring his commands to stop, who was ignoring the police officer who was pointing a gun at him, backing up, yelling, stop, stop. Chip Olson could only assume that that person had bad intentions and that person intended to do him great bodily harm and to do him violence. And he made the tough decision to use deadly force to defend himself. His decision was reasonable. He is not a murderer. She revisits Walker's testimony, spending a considerable portion of her closing attempting to rebut Olson's training officer. First of all, he told you, and he agreed, that the use of force policy is a policy, that it's not the law. He actually said he thinks parts of the use of force policy are wrong, but he also told you that police officers have the same right to defend themselves as any citizen in the state of Georgia. So while they're not above the, above the law, they're not below the law either. That law, she reminds them, does not require Olson to retreat. But, Clark Palmer says, the gun should not be viewed only as a lethal solution. He agreed, Sergeant Walker agreed, that drawing a gun is a show of control. That it can be used to de-escalate an encounter. That it can show the assailant resistance is futile. And yelling stop, stop, verbal commands, is part of the use of force continuum. That can be a show of control. Walking backwards is part of a technique to de-escalate the situation by widening that reactionary gap, giving the officer more time to react to what the aggressor is doing. And it actually says this right in the use of force policy. Having tackled the toughest state witnesses, Clark Palmer then turns her attention to the eyewitness testimony, which gave the prosecution fits. First of all, you heard that Grizel and Solange locked the door to their office. And Pedro Castillo told you that when he was up in the office, the women were very scared. So even though Anthony Hill wasn't threatening them, they didn't open the door to the office and let him in. She spoke of how the witnesses backed up Olson's account of his confrontation with Hill, that Hill was running at the officer, and that Olson shouted commands that were ignored. And this is from the state's witnesses. These were not 
witnesses that the defense called. These are not Chip Olson's friends. These are witnesses the state brought to you. Just think about Pedro Castillo's testimony, which was really key. He is an eyewitness. It's direct evidence. And he told you that Anthony Hill was attacking Officer Olson. He said that Anthony Hill was charging Officer Olson. And he said that he was challenging Officer Olson, like daring him, like do something. That's what Pedro Castillo came in this courtroom and said to you. I'm sure they would have liked to have talked about nothing but Castillo's testimony. But Clark Palmer had more testimony damaging to her client to deal with. But it would have probably been better left alone. So let's talk about Officer Anderson's testimony, because as you can imagine, I disagree with basically everything the state got up and said to you about Officer Anderson. Officer Anderson wasn't taking notes at the time. He didn't make any kind of recording of what Officer Olson said to him. He made a chip is lying to Officer Anderson. Why the heck is he pointing out the, the witnesses who are going to contradict what he just said? It makes no sense. Clark Palmer didn't call Anderson a liar, but she didn't exactly close the deal with the jury either. I mean, I'm not sure anyone in the court was persuaded by her version of events. The defense has made much of how little information Olson had when he arrived on the scene. Clark Palmer talked about the most crucial piece of information Olson didn't know. He didn't even know that he was a resident at those apartments. And I think that fact is huge. That's huge. He didn't know he was dealing with somebody who lived there. Officer Olson thought he was dealing with a suspicious person who was scaring the residents so much that they were calling the police multiple times and saying, please hurry, and locking themselves in the leasing office. And it's very easy now after the fact to critique what Officer Olson did. Now that we know Anthony Hill was going to charge him when he rolled up on scene, it's very easy to say, well, you should have stayed back. You should have not turned around the corner. You should have stayed in your car. But that's not what police officers do. Chip Olson went there that day to protect the residents of the Heights at Shambly Apartments. The jury makeup a mix of African-Americans and mostly liberal whites, clearly worried the defense. Clark Palmer concluded by appealing that they stick to the facts. You have to base your verdict on the evidence. You can't base your verdict on political leanings. You can't base your verdict on whatever ideology you hold. You can't base your verdict on what has happened in other cases around the country. And I think a lot of us would agree that Law enforcement across the country seems to have a problem when it comes to dealing with people of color. And I think all of us would agree that we want to improve that. And we don't want that to be the situation. Pay close attention to how she closes this out. But ultimately, you have to decide this case for yourself. And that you should never surrender your honest opinion to just be agreeable, to just get along. This is not a time to compromise because you want to get out of here and get back to your life or to compromise because you want to be agreeable. Don't think you're doing anybody any favors by compromising on which counts you think he's guilty or not guilty. That's not what the law says you should do and that's not justice. And you may think that Officer Olson shouldn't be a police officer anymore. And you may think As Mr. Samuel said in his opening, you may think that he's a coward. You may think 
that DeKalb County needs to do something different with their police officers. All those thoughts that I talked about before, you can have all of those thoughts. And you're going to have your verdict form back there with you. And you can write all of that on the back of the verdict form. But there's only one thing that you can write on the front. And it's not guilty to each and every count. Because that is the only verdict that is true and just in this case. Thank you. This is Breakdown. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. In Georgia, the state has the option of splitting its closing argument. They can go first, and they can go last. Lance Cross was chosen to put a bow on the state's case. The veteran prosecutor exudes confidence in the courtroom. One year while working in Fulton County, Cross took 14 murder cases to trial, and he won every one of them. For years, he tried several high-profile gang cases, including ones against 30 Deep, Jack Boys, Sex Money Murder, and Gangster Disciples. Cross made his case with an evangelical zeal filled with outrage and emotion. He put a lot on the shoulders of those jurors, imploring them to use Olson's case to send a message. He also started off by strongly condemning Clark Palmer's closing. It took the defense 42 minutes to mention his name. 42 minutes. So I want y'all to do me a favor and write his name down. It's Anthony Hill. Okay. For 42 minutes and for a week of trial, he was called the suspect. That's what they refer to him as. The assailant, I wrote it all down. Demented. The perpetrator. They mentioned PCP. There's no evidence of that. This is somebody's son. They don't get to just wipe away his memory in this case. Anthony Hill's life mattered. It mattered in your community, and it mattered to his family, and you can't just forget that and wipe it away. There sure was a lot of indignation from Cross here, and I found it surprising that Clark Palmer would withhold Hill's name for such a long time. So, because I'm recording the proceedings, I checked. Here she is about three minutes into her closing arguments. The aggravated assault being the state says that Robert Olson assaulted Anthony Hill by shooting him with a gun. And then because Mr. Hill died, they want you to convict him of that count one, the felony murder count. And like Mr. Johnson said, the question for you to decide is not, did Robert Olson shoot Anthony Hill? I brought this up to Cross later in the hallway. He grimaced when I told him the news. Just missed it, he said. Back in the courtroom, Cross became a bit emotional. That's not usually how he is, he said. He then told the jurors they were the conscience of DeKalb County and could not let this crime go unpunished. When you commit a killing like this of a completely innocent person, it's like it has effects. It's like dropping a big rock in a pond. It ripples out. Okay, it's obvious the effects it has on this poor family. That's obvious. It's obvious the effects, obvious the effects that it has on your community. Throughout the trial, the prosecution and defense butted heads in the courtrooms. Then, during breaks, they talked easily with one another. 
even exchanging jokes. But during his closing, Cross got personal with Samuel and Clark Palmer, who, as you'll hear, have offices in the affluent Buckhead area of Atlanta. These criminal defense lawyers don't get to dip themselves in blue and today wrap their arms around the police like they love. You've got three dedicated prosecutors at this table who work with the cops every single day. To find Robert Olson guilty is not an anti-police verdict. You stop for a second, talk, go back there and talk about the effect killings like this have on police and community relations. What does it do to good, reasonable officers like Officer Anderson, who respond on scenes and now they're met with distrust? Finding him guilty is a pro-police verdict in this case. Absolutely no Buckhead defense counsel lawyering can get up here and change these facts. And if you look at these facts, you can't, your conscience cannot allow you to let him just say, my bad. It can't. He was naked. How are you ever more vulnerable than in that state? Cross then goes into high gear, making it clear to jurors what he thinks of Anthony Hill's death. He was killed for nothing. Don't even give that to them. Well, he jogged at the officer, so he had to put a bullet in him. That's offensive. Do not give them that. He did nothing. He did nothing and he's dead. That's the truth of this case. And it's not okay. It's not something you can brush off, not anymore. Not today, not in this county, not in this case. It doesn't get brushed away or covered up or called something else or stretched or exaggerated. It is what it is. And he's guilty because of it. He would never hurt anybody and he lies dead on a pavement covered in blood because of Robert Olson. That's the truth. And that's a crime. Cross then walks jurors through the other options Olson had on his belt. Ask baton, he had that available. This is a weapon. He could have used this. We wouldn't be here. We shouldn't be here. But no, he reached right for his gun. Cross dismisses the defense's contention that Olson had just a few seconds to react. He reminds jurors of Olson's 15-minute drive to the apartment. He was told someone was demented. And Olson never heard anything on his radio indicating that Hill had threatened or harmed anyone. To go with him, you've got to believe he somehow brought this on himself. He deserved to get shot. His actions were so bad that he could lose his life, be taken away from his family. What did he do? Think about this. This is important. His last words on this earth were, the police are my friends. You can't look at this the way they want you to in a two-second episode. You have to look at everything. And everything tells you he needed help, help me, help me. When he saw a uniform like he used to wear when he was in the Air Force, he recognized it as a friend. The police are my friends. Do you say the police are my friends and then run as fast as you can to hurt them? No, what do you do? You see a uniform like the one he used to wear? You see the police who you consider your friends? And what do you do? You run to them for the one thing you needed, which was help. Olson's major misstep was to inject his gun into the situation right off the bat. That is ridiculous. That is not policing. That is not being a cop. That's an ad assault. That's excessive right there. That's excessive force. You can't say that's okay. 
you don't pull a gun out to send a message. And let's talk about that for a minute. That's got to change. I don't, I've been in law enforcement for 20 years. I'm going to tell you right now. You can't say it's all right as the conscience of this community for officers to pull out their guns to send a message to a young man. That's how people die. That's got to stop. That's offensive too. Do not co-sign on to that. You send a message that is wrong. When Cross makes his next claim, he really seems to be pushing the edge of the envelope. You need to go and talk back and talk about if, whether or not this would have happened in any other community. You put this in an affluent suburb. Does it happen? And I know this is the South and we're supposed to be polite and there's things sometimes we just don't talk about in mixed company, right? Back in that room, y'all need to talk about all this. Because if your answer is now, it wouldn't have happened. Not somewhere else. Maybe in Heisen, she can't believe it. You know, maybe not up in an affluent suburb. That tells you this is what? Unreasonable. Because justice is the same everywhere. No matter where you live, no matter who you are. Cross wraps up with a flourish. I typically don't get this emotional, but this case is important. All cases are important. This case has weight. This case has weight in this community. You are gonna determine what's okay and what's not okay what folks can do and what they cannot do. You were going to make it so Anthony Hill did not die in vain. You were going to say, look, that, that's enough. Stop. You can't pull a gun to send a message to someone. You can't put a bullet in someone who's unarmed. Your life isn't worth more than someone else's life. Everyone's life is equal. You guys, before you came here and when you leave, you watch the news, you see TV, and you say, somebody's gotta do something, right? Somebody's gotta stand up and do something. I wanna sit down, and in a little while, you're somebody. There's asking you to do something. Find him guilty on each and every single count, because that's justice in this case. Thank you for your time. Next on Breakdown. Everyone may be seated. I think I saw juror number two with the, some paper in your hand. All right, you are the four person. All right, if you will please stand. Have you reached a verdict? We have. Was it unanimous? Yes. I'm Bill Rankin. I'm Christian Boone. Thanks for joining us again on Breakdown. You've been listening to Breakdown, reported and narrated by Bill Rankin and Christian Boone. Produced by Shannon McCaffrey. Edited by Richard Hallex. Sound designed by Shane Backler at WSB Radio. Original music composed and recorded by Bo Emerson and Anthony Hill. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Monica Richardson, Sean McIntosh, Brad Schrade, Pete Corson, Pete Spriggs, Chris Camp, Veronica Waters, and all the great people at the AJC. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous six seasons of Breakdown. And of course, thanks so very much for listening. Ocean Breeze, Tropical Beach, Pina Colada. 
You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC.